All right, and welcome to another Tuesday podcast of The Dicer Screaming. Oh. Oh, yeah, that's a throaty one. Little, little horse. Yeah, I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And together we form The Dice Men, the gestalt of the two-headed et- literary etin of podcasts. <laughs> Gaming podcasts. I was going to say we're more like the, the off-brand hot sauce. You know, we're vaguely spicy, but, eh, you know. Yeah, it, it, not, right not, not as good as those top brands. No. Yeah. <laughs> not top shelf. Definitely not top shelf. Oh. Yeah, so uh, it's Tuesday. It's the 1st of October. Oh, the man. The spooky season starts. Yes. Oh, true Halloween love begins. And yet you can look forward. You know, this will play a part in episodes close to that much vaunted day. Not, not yet. Not yet. We're going to stick to the normal stuff for now. Yeah. But Spooky's coming. Oh, yeah. we got some Spooktober stuff headed your way in. As well as we're going to try to fit in as soon as time permits that uh, me and Mike can sit down and do a live cast of, or, well, recorded live cast, of doing a Tunnels and Trolls uh, send-off to Rick Loomis Buffalo Castle. So be looking yeah. for that. I just got to get things uh, settled down a little bit so we can uh, have that time. But nonetheless... Uh, a true venue has been an issue. You know, we want a nice, quiet venue to do something like that so that it, it's a nice, clean sound and uh, for a live cast and also good visibility, good lighting. Uh, so we we haven't quite nailed that down yet. But once again, this is a, it's totally going to happen. Brace, right. brace yourselves. Uh, nail the windows shut. Uh, move to high ground. Uh, hide the pets. Yep, we just need uh, that little bit of thing that called, it is called time that seems to be so rare in our lives. But nonetheless, uh, we got some topic for you tonight. It's Topic Tuesday, so uh, you hang around for that. And we also got some call-ins, so uh, we're going to start off with Larry Hamilton from Yay. Follow Me or Die. He's got uh, some uh, opinions about our last podcast, so take it away, Larry. Hey, fellas, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Great episode on wish fulfillment. I like your twist, how you veered away from what people might have been thinking. You definitely did that for what I was thinking. Um, So I just wanted to thank you for that. I also had a related idea for the Game Master. What about their wish fulfillment? I know for me as a Game Master, I want to have a long-running campaign where the players grow and meet their challenges and affect the game world and keep me on my toes so I have to come up with explanations for things that they've found and hints and clues and all that and so just something to think about good episode all right thanks for that Larry yeah that's uh glad you enjoyed the episode and uh yeah there was a little bit of uh we're fooling with you at the beginning of that <laughs> just a tease uh, if we were really going to fulfill wishes we'd, we'd uh, end the show and get off the air so <laughs> <laughs> yeah we can leave yeah, you alone there were, you know that's a wish fulfilled right there you know and <laughs> and nothing of value it was lost mm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> no um actually good to hear from you and i'm glad you enjoyed uh we really do you know, we we really should do some homage to what is it that DMs want, you know, sometimes? Just really, really sit down and piece together what makes DMs happy. Because we, we talk a lot about how the DM can have players be content with the game that they're playing. But what about happy DMs? You know, how do we how do we move? Yeah, I, I'm kind I, of enamored of this idea now. I want to do that. Yeah, we can look at that. But I think that uh, that's also managed with you know, a lot of things that the DM gets to do. We don't praise that enough. You know, the DM gets to set the tone. They get to pick the place and the time. And then they get to watch the players absolutely destroy it. Yep. (laughs) There was a meme this morning that um, I'll be putting up on our webpage that said that uh, there's a DM at St. Peter's Gate, and St. Peter looks down at the book and said, Oh, so you were a forever DM. Well, I see you served your time in hell. Welcome to heaven. <laughs> oh, it's true. Yeah, yeah. It's, true. It, it's no more torment that can be inflicted on a human being than being a DM and watching. Well, and if you were a really cruel DM, you, you show up down in the other place and, you know, just fire and brimstone and, you know, like a looming shadow comes over. Oh, you were a DM, huh? Yeah. Uh, we're going to shatter all your expectations and dreams. What do you think about that, little man? I was a DM for 15 years. Oh, well, would you like a job app? 
Uh, <laughs> we, got, uh, we got some room in tour guides. You know. Yeah, you, know, you serve as a tour guide. <laughs> Anyhow, that's probably where I ended up. So you got a point. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll definitely uh, be looking for ways maybe to address that. We have talked about the responsibilities a lot of the DM, but you know also. How to make yourself happy as a DM, I think, is a good medium between that. <laughs> Lowered expectations. <laughs> uh, that it, it does help. It, it does. does. Help. It does. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Set realistic goals. Huh. Well, and also, then expect them to be destroyed as yeah, well. <laughs> they will never be made. Um, so thanks a lot, Larry. Keep it up over at uh, Follow Me and Dying. If you're not listening to Follow Me and Dying and Larry Yo, Hamilton over there. really should. Yeah, he's a great guy and uh, definitely knows what he's doing with some dice and some paper. So, all right. Uh, also speaking of dice and paper, there's Prosoth. And the psionic platypus deigned to drop by from the ethereal plane to give us his thoughts. From the lair of the psionic platypus, we bring you. What's up, y'all? I am catching up on some of y'all's stuff and just wanted to let y'all know I really enjoyed the White Dwarf episode. Love, love, love early White Dwarf. Love the variety, as y'all touched on. Love the modules that were in there. I love the reviews. In fact, I love everything about it. I love the production design, the fonts, the art, everything. Those early ones, perfection. And I'm really looking forward to hearing y'all talk about some of the other ma- early magazines, like uh, Imagine y'all mentioned. Uh, you know, they had their whole Pelinor setting and all that, and uh, different worlds. I've managed to see a few of those. And uh, there's also another one called Adventurer that I think was only like, whoa, they got a new thing on Anchor, a little countdown beep. Ah! All right, thanks for that, Prof. Yeah, that's great. Uh observations on some other magazines um imagine i'm glad you like a white dwarf but imagine was one that i just really didn't see much of in this neck of the woods and i never even heard of adventure it sounds familiar maybe i've seen it but if i saw the ads for it somewhere or something but uh i've never laid my hands on a copy i i admit openly and without shame Uh, but i do remember imagine Uh, man i wish i had a copy of that still yeah, the Pelinor campaign, yeah. It's kind of a shame that a lot of that stuff's kind of disappeared, you know, due to copyrights and all that. Uh, you know, it, it's a lament that we have in our older years that we miss this stuff, that uh, we didn't appreciate what we had back then, so... Yeah, if we'd known how hard it would become to get your hands on that information again, uh, and to, to be able to give it a look over as an adult, uh, with a different perspective, if we'd known... We would have guarded the stuff like treasures. Uh, instead, of course, uh, most of my copies are somewhat on the dog-eared side. Yeah, and especially with, like, Flea Bay. Oh, uh, well. You know, the prices that they command for stuff, but, uh, yeah. Uh, you but, know, uh, to be fair, if you're mindful and you're willing to dedicate the time, eBay is full of a lot of terrific deals, uh, but the consistent stuff, the stuff that is constantly there... Uh, will beguile you into believing that the average price is much higher than it is. Because uh, those items never sell. There's a few people who are doing something pronouncedly unethical and have items there that are listed at a far higher price than their actual value, but it does count as some of their store's inventory. So, you know, for what I assume are, uh, you know, catalog and inventory purposes, they are fluffing the value of their items quite a bit. Uh, possibly, I would suggest that it's some kind of insurance scam or something like that. Uh, in any case, it becomes a bit of work to creep around eBay every few days and run search strings and try to pull up things like that. And you'll find that things with a much more genuine price do pop up here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've really got to strike while that iron is hot. I, I found oh, some yeah. wonderful well, I just, stuff. I mean, oh, the, the entire A1 through A4 Slaver series. That was great to get. Yeah, I I just pick on Bay, so, you know, ah. it, it, I dislike the high-end sellers. But, you know, that's what they do, and, you know, that's what I do is mock people. So, <laughs> all right. But, hey, uh, we we definitely do not mock the signing platypus, and glad you're digging uh, some of our back inventory. Let us know yeah, what you Warhammer think, Yeah, Warhammer was awesome. 
Uh, that just those early magazines were on point. Great quality paper, really good production work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, their editorial staff were on point as well. I mean, if you didn't mind the occasional Britishism popping up that uh, our, you know, we American readers may have had a little difficulty with at 14 or 15, uh, the content was top flight. Yeah. So, hey, uh, so thanks for dropping by, uh, Sonic Platypus, and good luck to you on your further endeavors on eating thoughts. <laughs> and also with that timer, so hope you, uh, you're you all right, man. But uh, we're going to turn it over now to a little bit of uh, paying the bills, is like we call the segment of the show, and then we're going to come back right there with you some topic. So, stay tuned. All right, and welcome back from the break. Uh, we're ready here to bring you some of that there topic. So what there topic do we dare talk about tonight hey well it's it's actually intrinsically related to science fiction role play we hinted at it in past episodes uh yes we did we we dropped a few little little hints just to suggest that yeah we're gonna have to hit this shortly um and now it's totally happening this is totally happening yeah we want to talk about an appendix and maybe outside of uh Dungeons and Dragons, just gaming in general, and this was a topic that uh, we had wrestled with at that time. We're still going to do it, but uh, on this case, we have to devote an entire episode just to this one topic, and that would be Dune, Frank Herbert's masterwork. Yes, Uh, and coming right out of the gate, the very first thing I'm going to say is I understand perfectly that there are many folks who are not enormous fans of Dune. Totally understandable. I have no especially strong allegiances here. Uh, But its influence is still so outsized that, I mean, it punches way above its weight class, okay? It, Mm -hmm. It may not have been the novel series that everyone enjoyed, but with regard to what we think of as modern science fiction and science fiction gaming... Uh, Dune has just had an enormous, enormous impact, like a, a meteor on a planet full of dinosaurs. It just, boom! Uh, all of a sudden, it's time for the mammals to get a chance. <clears throat> right, and, you know, uh, Asimov and Tubbs had done uh, work on Foundation uh, series and The Lensman and other such things, E. Doc Smith. They'd done, like, a, a Interstellar Empire, but Dune really put it to the test, Um I think he said it best with the imagineering at work there. Yes, a very, very imaginative combination of... And look, obviously the inspiration came from historical things, uh, you know, the various, uh, in, in some respects, societies uh, and agencies of Earth history had a profound impact on what he developed into organizations and agencies in space. Uh, which <laughs> uh, it may have been a simple translation in some respects, uh, but he certainly created this incredibly elaborate backdrop with an enormous variety of players. Uh, the idea being that you know it is in fact an interstellar empire. There's a lot of agencies dependent on a single substance that makes space travel possible, uh, and the spice, you know. It must flow, mm-hmm. because the Empire exists only by its grace. <laughs> one rarefied substance, an unobtainium, that classic comes from only one planet in the entire universe, and war is almost forbidden to be fought there for the idea of toxifying or destroying the fragile ecology that already exists would nullify it. And, you know, despite literally... Um, thousands of years of work to figure out where the spice is produced and how it's produced. No one had been able to replicate it outside of its rarefied conditions that exist on the desert planet Arrakis. Yes, and that that is the initial thrust of the Dune novels, that the all-important spice that alters perception, uh, that, well, mutates, it changes the uh, user of the spice uh, into a being who can perceive at a level that allows space navigation. Yep, the navigators go literally bathe in the stuff. The mentats, the living computers, their thought and recollection processes are extremely heightened beyond any human normality into superhuman or even beyond 
what humans could conceive of at certain points. Yeah. As well as the swordsmen take it for physical enhancement and perceptual awareness in battle. As well as just is occasionally indulged as a relaxation drug, as well as one that expands the lifespan and cures various ills and humors of the body. Yeah, kind of a just an all-purpose, you know. Yeah, it literally is the spice. It is such a desirable unattainium. You know, it, it, it's not your typical, oh, well, there's only one thing it does. Uh, and so there's no other use for it than that. Oh, no. Um, you the know, Bene Jesuit use it to conceive and change the human race. Yeah. But the, to look into the future. The engineering of uh, human life by virtue of a single substance that is incredibly rare and precious. And so the administration of this substance, the the management of this, is entrusted only to persons truly believed by uh, the imperial family to be absolutely and Right, a consortium of uh, the imperial family, of the noble houses are placed in charge of the, I think it's called the Chom, which stands for the, uh, some Swedish thing. The, it, it basically is like a consortium that distributes and purifies and sets the standards for spice throughout the uh, galaxy. And, of course, without it, the uh, idea of having an interstellar empire is useless because the navigators, who mutate through their long use of it and their extremely long-lived lives, through uh, their massive inhale, inhalation of spice. I mean, it just started out as a little bit, but now it's like a whole bathtub full. Yeah, and let's face it, Mr. Herbert was, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was an era at which that was being uh, written. Um, <laughs> there are shades of uh, hinting at, like, LSD and mm-hmm. you know, other, uh, although, you know, really it, it became an amalgam allegory. Yeah. Where it, was metaphorically all types of drugs, except that in Dune, it was actually useful. It accomplished something decent. Uh, the optimism of the 60s aside, most of those substances uh, had no real legitimate use beyond like some pain relief in extremis uh, and probably should not have been abused. Uh, but True enough. Uh, hey, the optimism of the 60s, he, there was a little whip of that in there. The idea of a substance that indeed alters the self alters the mind not for the worse but for the better now that you know it's a little reverse engineering maybe maybe i'm reading too much into it but i thought it was there i thought it was there too and uh maybe you might uh, have a different uh thought on it but uh we're talking more about the book than the movie but it is obvious that the oh, movie we'll, we'll get to that that's that's phase right two. that's that's where we're getting ahead of ourselves but i just wanted to say that the movie took some of those ideas and ran with them far beyond what the novel had. When the novel first came out, and I think it was, uh, really became popular in the early 60s. I think he started in the 50s. Yeah. And then uh, he had supposedly read two books before starting it. Something about knife fighting and uh, biodiversity in the desert. Oh, interesting. That was his uh, homework? Yeah. That was, well, that was just two books, and then he came out with this. And his, supposedly, as the story goes, his family, including his wife, had a... a profound effect in helping shape it as he would read chapters off or talk about uh, his ideas about it, especially the Bene Jesuit and the other a definite female perspective in a time where not it was not unheard of to have women science fiction writers, of course. Oh, well, yeah, especially considering that the genre was started by a woman. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Mary Shelley. Yep. Forever. My favorite goth. Exactly. And it, it comes to term with that... There was a different perspective that he wasn't quite thinking about in the long term, but the ability of the Bene Jesuit to metabolize substances. Uh, they could be um, immune to poisons and diseases simply by the virtue that their control of the human gene inside their wombs rather than using machines. And that's what it really breaks down is that humanity had reached almost an evolutionary dead end in the early part of this interstellar travel before the uh, Butlerian Jihad, which was a literal war of uh, survival for humans, since they relied so much on machines, the machines began to assert a greater and greater degree of control over humanity. 
and forcing them to remain docile and in many cases enslaved to the machine's basic needs to yeah. survive. And mind you, this is a very early example of like AI uh, overload. You know, but this is just how maximum overdrive started. Yep. Uh, and so, you know, the Butler and <laughs> Jihad started as a, a protest. And then after that, the Spice Bowl, uh, to cover these inadequacies that humanity had with no longer uh, having to rely on machines anymore, they began to look for a new way and so the spice was introduced and it allowed humans to transcend their normal limitations now that is a unique point of view that i think dune had its early at its earliest concepts was so overwhelming for a lot of people that drugs are good yeah i mean it let's let's face it you know this was uh, in stark contradiction to the sentiments of the time and also in stark contradiction to the even the facts of the time uh you know that I mean, yeah, that through a a all spice, a an unobtainium, a magical uh, rare substance, that humanity could transcend its normal boundaries, and now humanity began to evolve. And yeah. the Bene Jesuit were initially given that task of overseeing the evolution of humanity as a whole. Yeah, excreted from a giant desert worm, <laughs> unknown to anybody. <laughs> well, the Fremen knew it. Yeah, the original inhabitants or the colonists the, there. The original colonists of Arrakis, the Fremen, uh, you know, who are uh, a model after the Bedouin, who are completely taken with the survival in this harsh, very alien world that it's not really made for humans. No, it, it's actually, you know, intentionally uh, specified in the novels what a brutal environment it is and how quickly it can decimate the unready. Uh, you know, a single terrible sandstorm, uh, if you are not properly equipped, uh, you're not going to live. So, incredibly hostile environment, and yet it's also the only place where the spice can be acquired. Uh, most of this done, of course, by, uh, well, the uh, various families who have well, the lawn yeah. I'm, I'm struggling with the term it's not a mining operation per se but it is an extraction operation where yeah that's part of the chome company yeah the, uh, the uh, consortium that is run by the old houses but one house in order to achieve power to keep from one house dominating it they're all given a time at the wheel yes as the, as the director of the board with the emperor of course having the high seat being the overall overseer and chairman, but not really in control, just making sure that uh, those that are appointed to it fulfill the uh, obligations of their house and the tasks set before them, the yeah. quotas and such. That nothing is to endanger the you know appropriate flow of this spice from this planet. That it literally interstellar travel and the ability to project power around an interstellar empire is absolutely dependent on this. And so, theoretically, if anyone were to ever gain a stranglehold on this substance, uh, they would be holding the entire empire hostage. Right. And another thing in the book that uh, it did away with in tropes was there was no giant space battles. No. Um, there were massive ships, container vessels called highliners that that the navigators brung other vessels into, and then they would transport them across the galaxy. Now, interstellar, once you were off a highliner or near a place like that, you could disembark. And, of course, you had to fight it out with, you know, your rival. Yeah, that's fine. But under the strictest and direst of ex uh, circumstances, like spending the rest of your existence in a pain amplifier, you were never to attack one. Uh, <clears throat> so vital was the concept of space travel that, like any form of piracy... Uh, you know, might as well have been instantaneous death sentence for all involved. Uh, you know, or worse than death. Oh, you'll wish you got off that light. Yeah, save <laughs> the last round for yourself. But, uh. yeah, there was still piracy of spice, but nobody dared attack the Navigator's Guild ships. And so, you know, there wasn't any big space battles, and so they would just land. And here again... That you... makes it differ from a great deal of the science pulp fiction of that era. Okay, you know, the, the idea of... Ship-to-ship uh, -ship battles in space, you know, was already well entrenched by the time that Frank Herbert was writing this. And interestingly, he eschewed all of that. Yep, just turned the, it on the navigators would just in an instant fold time and space 
and you were where you, the Highlander originated, and now it was to its destination in literally a few moments. Yeah, that a rather unique perception of warp travel, or something of that sort. Yeah, they didn't have to travel fast or not. They just had to be wherever they wanted to be in the known universe. And a navigator would be skilled by having traveled to these places in his time. Or their her time. Their time. We really don't even know that they... I think, yeah, it's actually mentioned that they, they're they genderless. At a certain point, they they have metamorphosed beyond what a human is anymore. Oh, yeah. Uh, and- a bit, years of existing in... Or centuries existing in no gravity have atrophied their limbs and their other non-essential organs. Basically floating in a tank that is like perpetually filtering uh, liquid with spice through them. Uh. (laughs) Has mutated them beyond anything of human. You gotta ask, uh, uh, was it really worth it, buddy? You get to be 800 years old, but you just float in a tank all day like a, you know, smart goldfish. It's pretty cool. You're pretty high all the time. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure. I, I'm I'm calling that not but the best yeah, part. But yeah, I mean, ever. what a concept that is. And, it, you know, as a mind fryer. And now, here we are. We're post-Star Wars kids. You know, oh, we grew yeah. up in the 70s with Star Trek and other things. And, yeah, you know, science fiction was really coming alive at that time. And, you know, out of this also came Frank Herbert's Dune. And so it was a really thick work. And for some people, they look... It's sitting on my shelf over there... Uh, the the first uh, two books, and it's a really thick read, and you don't really get, I don't feel the book really moves well until about maybe about 150 pages in, and then you start like really getting it, but there's so much to absorb. Yes, there, there was so much world building, much like with Tolkien, uh, although Herbert is... A, he was more of an intentional writer by design. Okay, he, he yes. was. He was. Yes. Planning he was to going. Write. He went by it. Tolkien created a, a history and then had a story that was centered around the history. Yeah. Uh, Herbert, you know, had a story and he built the history for it. So, in a more traditional writer style, uh, Herbert, I, I think of as more of the literary uh, person in in the traditional respect. I'm not. I'm not dissing Tolkien. Tolkien is one of my favorite things ever. But the similarity here is that the world building is of such enormous scope that people find it off-putting. Makes it a difficult novel for them to properly sit down and enjoy because you do have to work your way through a lot of background to get to the more entertaining aspects. And I think he does a pretty good job of lacing the intricacies of the various noble houses, the guilds, the Swordsman Guild, um, which is more or less just a bodyguard, a glorified bodyguards guild. Yeah. And, of course, the various, uh, you know, we talked about Space Marines, but the uh, Sadakar Terror Legions, a hell world, which was populated through nuclear, or decimated through, was once in a great industrial planet that was destroyed through toxic warfare, chemical warfare, biological nuclear. Yeah, and uh, again, the survivors. An, an echo of the 1950s ethos, you know, like the, the realities that people were being obligated to sit down and examine what would happen if we go all the way uh, in warfare. So, again, at the time that Dune was written, it was, you know, subtly. Yeah, the Sadakar were techno barbarians who were like uh, lifted off of their planet in a series of brutal trials. And then given full imperial equivalency in the Terror Legions, which were merciless troops by men who had, or warriors who had adapted to such a hostile and brutal environment that they no longer had any mercy and were stronger by benefit of just natural selection and were completely merciless and devoid of many of the other niceties of civilization. They actually had to be civilized. (laughs) Don't shoot everybody. Okay. I want to. No, don't. You're going to make me blow my aggression inhibitor. Don't flip a table. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was a really weird, and I'm going to be punny here, melange uh-huh, ah, well, of various aspects of science fiction and also new ideas and twists on old tropes. So, yes, you had this very almost a Byzantine-like political atmosphere with oh, an emperor very. and various houses allied and tributations and uh, various... Uh, family allegiances interwoven amongst each other to keep a fragile peace from civil war tearing it apart and threatening, was, at the center of it all, spice 
production and yeah. distribution. It was meant to be an enormous series of checks and balances with the opposing powers uh, kind of working like pyramid-style walls, where everything is leaning on each other, and it's the process of leaning against each other that holds it up, uh, so that you can't really shift the support without everything tumbling down. Uh, it was intended to be like that. Of course, the machinations of others slowly erode that intention. Uh. <laughs> now, there are many other books. There's uh, four others that are written by Herbert, and now by his son, and uh, other collaborative artists and writers. And I think those are all well. I uh, I enjoyed Chapter House uh, of the newest ones. I really liked that one. But I didn't enjoy the Harkonnen one as much. But maybe that's... I mean, that's just me. I'm not trying to offer a, a strict criticism. Harkonnen Night Fight! <laughs> yeah, Harkonnen Night Fight. What a great band. Um, <laughs> no, I'll... Now, we, we probably should touch on the films. Yeah, we, I wanted to just uh, go into the books a little bit. There's... Uh, um. There's Dune, there's God Emperor Dune, Children of Dune, and all that. Right. And, you know, all those are fine, and some people say, well, well, you know, there should only be one. I, I don't know. I think that the story kept going on, and it and there was still plenty to be told. So I, would, I was still pretty enamored uh, three books in. Uh, less enamored somewhat afterwards, but, uh, but very Yeah, the enamored. God Emperor Dune was... Was for me the high point there. I mean, yeah. at, at that one, you just you were re, uh, the one thing I had to say about him is once you got into the sequels, the, the after the first one, they were just you oh, you were already invested, so they didn't have to tell you much. They just talked about you know there was the face dancers and the assassins and all that. But. Yeah, less lead in time because you're you're not busy getting an education on the background, uh, but you know so more meat and potatoes, less. Uh, Filler. Yeah, and so now we go to the movies. Now, of course, uh, it's recently come to light that Jordowski, a very innovative fig, uh, filmmaker in the 70s, attempted to do Dune early on, casting uh, people like Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones as um, Fade Harkonnen, oh, and uh, Orson Welles as uh, Baron Harkonnen. Wow. Um, as I, well as Pink Floyd for uh, and the heavy metal band from France called Magma, and several others. Magma, Magma, Liquid Hot Magma. Yes, I know you said it. And you know, it was a very, very. Uh, they even had Salvatore Dali as the oh, emperor. Oh my goodness! <laughs> How incredibly appropriate, and yet too trippy to properly embrace. And yeah, and he that, that's just almost too much. And yeah, and he had a whole stable of artists. Now a lot of the, this whole thing fell apart and all the artists like H.R. Giger and um several effects artists, uh Tan uh I can't remember his last name, but yeah, several effects artists went to do stuff with Star Wars and other science fiction films. So, you know, Alien, even Flash Gordon benefited from Jordowski's attempt. So but the one who actually ended up getting the thing made, and uh, who was a very tortured uh, existence afterwards, David Lynch, uh -huh. and he did a racer head. So if Which, you would like, if you ever watched a racer head, you mean Ellen Smithy? Yeah, uh, well, okay. yeah, we'll get to that one. <laughs> well, he did a racer head, and you're like the guy who did a racer head's doing Dune. Okay, right. it makes I, yeah. You you had me at like a dude who did a racer head. I, I'm I'm in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a, a hit with film buffs everywhere. So much was expected. Uh, however, the, the thing... He followed kind of the stock. They got Sting to do uh, Fade... Fade Ruatha. Fade Ruatha, yes, thank you. And uh, they had an, an appropriate actor for Baron Harkonnen, who just went completely off the wall. Oh, yeah, that was kind of over the rails. I mean... Ew. Oh, yeah, over the rails. I'm sorry, off the wall. Yeah, he, was, he went over the top of that. But, yes... The floating fat man. And of course, uh, Jose uh, Ferreira as the emperor. Not a bad choice. Yeah, very gravitas. You know, hey, guy. A lot of gravitas. Yeah, that guy. And um, played Jesus at one part, didn't he? I don't know. No, that's not one of the uh, biblical poems he played Jesus. But hey, anyway. In any case, uh, the initial outing there. Uh, involved several directors, uh, and <laughs> funding issues, uh, arguments over vision, uh, changes of directorial style. Uh, the music. Yeah. 
It led to a lot of difficulty in getting one person to sign their name to this project, because in almost every single case, uh, something had been asked of them creatively that some of them did not want to be Del- associated Dino with. Dino so, De Laurentiis had asked for a, a metal soundtrack to be done with it with uh, David Lynch. Like, no, I, I think it's a to- totally appropriate to have a operatic or even symphonic uh yeah, I think the symphonic Toto thing. But, but they picked Toto. Yeah, it, Because, again, you know, if you could pick any rock band out of the 70s or 80s to fill the volumes of Doom, I would not have went with Toto. I might have went with somebody, say, like, oh, uh, Pink Floyd. I missed the range down in Arrakis. Yeah, I guess uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you got the Toto soundtrack, so good job, Dino De Laurentiis. Uh, well, look, uh, you know, but the, the, the backdrops, the, the Hollywood schlocks uh, loved to do that kind of thing. They the loved costumes. To, I want a rock theme because that's what the kids like, and the kids are dumb. The just sets give them, for give, the give them whatever the kids listen to today. The, that Toto or whatever that is, you know. Just yeah, it literally know nothing, brain dead Hollywood. I, I assume, I, I assume, but cannot prove coke addled uh, as well. You know, just that that abuse. So, small wonder it wound up titled Director Alan Smithy. But um, David Lynch's presence is felt throughout the film in the costuming. Even some of uh, Jordowski's uh, ideas um, still made it in there, even though uh, some of the guys weren't around for that. They'd went on to other movies. Well, you know, like H.R. Geiger, you know, he never did anything after Jordowski's Dune project fell through, right? (laughs) Yeah, okay, so... (laughs) Um, but yeah, there were several other people in, uh... Oh, well, Max von Sydow, uh, in... Oh yeah, as the Imperial, uh... We have worm sign like God hath not seen. And, uh, Kyle McLaughlin? Yes, as the starring role. Yep, as, Our uh, chief protagonist. Jordowski, by the way, uh, had his own son, nine years old, go into full martial arts training for three years in preparation for the role. Good Lord! Oh yeah. Wow, that's a dedication to craft that is, I, I would argue, is perhaps a bit much. <laughs> well, son certainly enjoyed being trained in forms of martial arts. But yeah, they, they added some things like the sound, the Benny Jesuit, the voice. Um, that was not really in there. And yeah. There were some other departures here and there. Of course, Gurney uh, was given a, a lesser role, but he was still there, as well as Idaho, Duncan, and uh, some of the other more familiar characters that I enjoyed. Gurney Halleck uh, was kind of almost like a Sam Gamgee, of course, a little bit more uh, scrappier. Yeah, older and more, you know, authentically talented. And a drinker. Oh, yeah, you know. but a little bit more salt of the earth. Yeah, the guy who'd, who'd had profound experience and really knew his way around. So, you know, trusted mentor, so to speak, slash protector. And also musician. Yeah. Well, I, I got to say, that initial outing, for all its faults, Still made a good movie. In spite yeah. of all the chaos in its production, all of the changes of direction, uh, the pieces created by different directors mostly knit together pretty well in the final product. Mm-hmm. Mostly. Uh, there are some exceptions where it's it's a little jumbled. Yeah. And there's a lot that could have been. And there's and like, didn't. what, five different versions. There's an HBO version. There's an international version. There's an in, a European theat- theatrical release version. Oh, there's yeah. a directed. Co- you know, so there's all these different versions. And then there's just the one that was shown on TV. And I was like, okay, now, screw that, you know. In due deference to Dune, uh, because of its enormous popularity and its influence on games and right. you know, and film then, culture. Yeah. It came up again and has been redone as like a major miniseries that was lavishly shot. James McAvoy was yep. uh, the new star, and it was a terrific outing. I mean, one, they got the linear progression of the story correct. They, yeah, they, they were able to. Well, having they were a allowed time. to lavish that time on it. Yeah, where I really like the kind of Moroccan. Uh, set of the palace on Arrakis. I love yeah. that uh, architecture. I really think that uh, the new one also uh, did differently with uh, Harkonnen because I kind of got used to that post-industrial um, toxic worldview that they uh, kind of had on their planet, um, Gidi Prime. They had um, a different take on this one as well, but I think it also fits to the novel. I also think that... Um, 
Yeah, again, the second series also took some creative liberties. Yeah, and they, they changed uh, some things, but I think they changed... Fascinatingly, they, they brought alive a great deal more of the book's material mm -hmm. while simultaneously homaging the material from the first major attempt at, at making a movie of it. Uh, so the... Uh, Alan Smithy, yeah. David Lynch. Dune yeah, that's Dune. where we want to end it off. Gets, is it gets a nice homage in the the newer releases of Dune, which I think are nope. probably the best for a new watcher who has never read the books uh, and is just taking an interest. The more recent miniseries is a terrific starting point uh, that I, I think would deliver people a pretty good chance uh, to understand the essentials from the books without a major loss of of reality uh, you know the the first movie outing is not a perfect example and it was why uh Fun, got put but but not uh, perfect with alan smithy at the tail end of it because it's a mark of shame to the movie producers not the director that the director does not want to be associated with this pile of steaming crap so yeah, when a director was this is the piece of hollywood lore when a director mm -hmm. backs out of a project uh, and refuses to have his name legally associated on the film credits uh, for a movie, and no one is willing to put their name up, the habit had become to title it Alan Smithy. And they just basically put two E's on the end of Smith. Isn't the legend that they looked up in a phone book? Yeah. Alan Smithy directed this film. And I think, what, he's directed like some 20-odd films throughout Hollywood. Exactly. This was a name that was used whenever a film ran into that legal trouble and no one would... Put yeah, the director didn't want to put his name on it. And, and not because the director was terrible. I mean, the terrible directors, ironically, were happy to have yeah. their name on a film. The good directors who had been involved in a project that had been destroyed by incompetent administration, you know, producers... Uh, meddling by the studio and executives. Yeah, the, the various personages with money insisted, like, we need a monkey in this. And it, it should, like, punch people from the side of the spaceship. You know, just, yeah, the, the chuckle-headed... Yeah, see, like, Hugh Boyle puts his name on a movie. See, exactly. You know, terrible directors will happily associate their names with a film because some attention is better, whether bad or good, than no attention. Uh, in this case... Whenever a good director had his work savaged by morons, <laughs> they would back out and say, I want my name removed from this. You cannot publish my name. And they would be obligated to come up with a fake name for some mystery director, Alan Smithy, who surprisingly, many people would sometimes call and say, can we get Alan Smithy on this project? You know, like, um, <clears throat> well... Look, I, I know the guy's got a track record of having made a couple of dozen films here, but uh, I, I don't think that's the guy you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get on. We yeah, talk about so, gaming on so, this podcast. We're going to talk about the gaming. The now first, we, we hit game influences. Yeah, the first game that would be directly uh, lifted off of uh, out of Dune was called, of course, surprise, it was called Dune. And it was a board game where you played out kind of the Lonstrad of the great houses, the various war with the articles of Canley and all that. And you would have little, uh, the Benny Jesuit and the other factions as well being involved in this. And you were all trying to collect spice and you would have your turn to collect, be at the head of the Choam and then yeah. pass it back and forth. And it was a very intriguing game. And of course, uh, here again, I, I know Mike's already taken me a task, but on flea Bay, yeah, you're, you know, five, $600, you're buying a copy, but again, Every once in a while, you can find some decently affordable prices. But it's being released again, thank the gods. Oh, brother. Uh, so that it'll be available. But yes, it's still the same uh, format. I think Fantasy Flight Games had it, and they passed it to another company oh. um, that took it over. But, however, um, it's still out there, and uh, it's in a new edition. So, you know, grab yourself some friends and uh, get a copy of that. It's not too expensive, and no. it's a lot of fun. I'm out to understand that there was, in fact, a role-playing game. Yeah, and then That's a lot next. of people during this, when uh, After Traveler and a couple other games uh, came out, people were starting to say, you know, hey, after the Dune movie, you know, maybe a Dune role-playing game would be really cool. And there was a couple other Dune board games where uh, you played out in the combats of well, the, the battle for Arrakis itself. I am going to say, as a literary influence, I mean, behold Traveler with... Uh, 
you know, it's uh, psionics and psi-boosting drugs mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, came with both benefits and penalties. Yeah, and as we uh, covered... Legal nature, the quasi-legal nature of like you had to be a registered psionic. Some of these, like they they flirt with an origin or at least a similarity to some of the stuff in Dune, uh, and you know we can thank Dune for that. Thank Dune, and yes, you also uh, Warhammer Forty Thousand. Oh, more very much, wonderfully homaged in Warhammer Forty K. And then um, you know there were a couple board games, but. Uh, yeah, role-playing game was discussed several times, I guess, in the uh, mid to late 80s. And finally, um, Last Unicorn Games came out with the Dune the role-playing game. And it was uh, pretty well done. It used their uh, base, their house system, which was a series of uh, die six tests. But small pool, not a great big one. But um, they were immediately bought out by Wizards of the Coast at that Gen Con where it was released. Um me and my friend were fortunate enough to get a copy. They command some very high prices. But Last Unicorn Games was bought by Wizards of the Coast, and the Herbert family estate pulled the license. Oh. Because they did not approve the sale, and they did not know anything about Wizards of the Coast. They're still, like the Token family, uh, very intimately involved with the use of their brand. Yeah, they, I mean, considering that uh, publication of new material periodically occurs, they've kind of kept the... Uh, yeah, literary reference valid. You know, this isn't uh, like a hundred-year-old thing that nobody has done anything with uh, in like a half a century. Yeah, exactly. This they... is something that is an active product. So I, I forbear. While I, I'm usually a little grumpy about copyright laws and things like that, I forbear. They, they're actively using the material and keeping it in distribution. But in that one, the basic focus, you could play a smuggler of spice. Yes, that happened. Firefly-type-esque adventures could be had in the universe of Dune. The, look, the guild doesn't mind. Oh, yeah. Oh. Because you, that they have their own private reserve. Oh, because yeah. they don't trust the noble houses to keep... And How do I put it? it it's that uh, as long as nothing critical is in any way impacted, then it's okay. It's illegal, but it's not forbidden. Yeah. Don't get caught, but you can sell it to them. You could also, you could also create... Uh, there were... Uh, a very good grounding rules. The presumed start would be that you were members of a minor house allied to one of the great houses and that you would be caught up in the intrigues and other such things like that. So you could play the Benny Jesuit. You could even uh, play a swordsman guild or a mentat or other uh, just a noble himself. And, you know, you all benefited from Spice. Yeah, they had worked out stats for all of the classes uh, and abilities, and yeah, they had done a, what I think was a reasonably solid job. Yeah, it was a very solid game, but uh, less, um, there was only like a couple thousand copies made. They all sold out, and uh, yeah, you, if you can find one, good luck to you, but uh, was able to buy it at the time for the price. Um, but... Uh, I, apparently, uh, I've heard, also, well, also, I would like to, before I go to that, um, there was also a Renaissance and video game in the Command and Conquer series, uh, no. the Dune the Battle for Arrakis, again, not to be confused with a game, board game of the same name, the Dune uh, video game franchise did pretty well, and as a matter of fact, for a while in Command and Conquer, it was the biggest one played outside of Warcraft. Yes, uh, I recall that era. Now, I did not play that one myself. I, yeah, it was I basically done, a build your base. To... I did Command and Conquer, but I heard of people playing the Dune version of it, and I was like, oh man, that'd be cool, and I never got to. It so even I kind more, of meant that. It was only the only one of the Command and Control of family games of games that made it to a council. It actually made it to Sega. Wow. So, I mean, that tells you something about his success. But anyway, um, there was a Dune, Dune collectible card game and there's still a couple of Dune card games out there. Now, most of these are uh, build-your-own-deck sort of thing from a stock of cards. A deck construction games. But they're still out there. Yeah, I mean, and it makes sense that people would CCG it. I mean, it's just a, a beautiful, familiar theme. From yeah. The, you know, familiar series that uh, has enough background fan base uh, to guarantee a modest amount of sales. Yeah, the CCG didn't do too well. It was part of that glut, and then uh, they built a, what was yeah, called so a deck-building game. I'm not you... blaming the quality of the game. Oh, making, no. Okay, it was just that the market was hit with, like, <laughs> breathing air, the CCG. You know, just, yeah. it, 
everything had a CCG. And so all of a sudden, collectible card games were so saturated that none of them were selling well. Yeah, now they they went to uh, the newest incarnation is just a deck building game, which is a sealed set that you uh, you get a limited pull from. So anyway, okay, you know you just so you don't have to collect anything. You got the whole game right there with it. You know, maybe an expansion. But all right, so you know, getting back to the role playing game, there is talk now of reviving a role playing game again. Um, the uh, interest in the, some of the spin-off novels and prequels and all that and uh, other divergent uh, fiction that's been approved by the Herbert family. They're once again looking, uh, rumored to be looking at Fantasy Flight games to do Dune as well. But again, they have kind of this uh, dislike of being associated with anything associated with Disney. Oh, well, all right, yes. And Disney now is... Nominally uh, allied very closely because of Fantasy Flight's game's relationship with uh, the Star Wars license that they have. So, yeah. I mean, it's possible that Disney could just decide, hey, we're just going to buy you. <laughs> that's it. You know, you make... Settlers of Catan, yeah. You make that game? No, that's another game that's out of business. Okay, well, you're going to make Settlers of Catan for us. Okay, <laughs> that's all we want you to do. Oh. Yeah, it, it's... There's no telling what could happen. Uh, but it's... It, Pointless to borrow trouble on that one. Right, but Dune will be with us for quite a while, and I think it's a fitting tribute that it has its mark in gaming, and it's left a lot of its thumbprint, much like the Drzowski failed movie project, it's left its thumbprint on a lot of different projects. And we all can owe a big homage to Frank Herbert's seminal work. Yeah. And it was a great uh, time to be around in the 60s and 70s when that book was around, before the films came out and kind of, Made it even more confusing. Yeah, we may have bumped into it later, uh, you know, as we became, uh, you know, teens in the 80s. But uh, the book had an outsized influence on the other things that we were enjoying and discovering at that time. Mm -hmm. So there was a major trickle-down effect. So thanks a lot, Frank Herbert. All right, so we beat your drums to death enough, and now you're probably begging for mercy, especially if you get a double tap. While you're in your car, I was, oh my goodness, poor <laughs> oh, man, that had to have Jason, been like, poor man. That, that had to have been like, you know, being trapped under a steel girder. Yeah, I know, he was a poor guy. <laughs> I'm now haunted by that. <laughs> All right, so uh, again, if you like what you heard, if you have any comments, questions, concerning, yeah, yeah, you got concerns. But uh, you let us know on our Facebook page or here on the Anchor app, and uh, as well as on Twitter, where you can get a hold of us at the usual haunts there. But nonetheless, we're going to bid you adieu, and... May the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.